Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. For residents of Emporia, Kansas in 1983, news that one of their own had been gunned down in a roadside robbery was shocking enough. But the way that it had happened, with the victim's wife and four daughters looking helplessly on, made it so much worse. Marty Anderson wasn't necessarily the most beloved man in all of Emporia, but he was known as a gregarious guy, a churchgoer who was truly devoted to his girls, if not so much his wife. There had always been rumors about trouble on that front, but nothing so outrageous as to warrant such a brutal ending. Anderson had been coming from Manhattan, Kansas, back home to Emporia, when Lorna, his wife, suddenly felt ill and pulled over to throw up on the side of the road. In her nauseated haste, she'd grabbed the keys from the ignition, dropped them as she vomited, then called for Marty to help her find them in the brush. A masked man appeared and demanded Marty's wallet. Lorna's pastor relayed what happened next to a newspaper reporter. The Reverend Tom Bird said, quote, The man went berserk, shooting. He shot Marty a number of times. He grabbed Lorna and pulled her down, then took Marty's wallet. Then a car was coming by, so he threw her in a ditch, jumped on top of her, and told her not to scream. He put the gun to her head and pulled the trigger on her. But it just went click. It didn't shoot. Then he got scared and ran, end quote. It was such a confounding crime that the headlines in the Wichita Eagle Beacon called it a mystery plagued by unanswered questions. It's so bizarre, one of Marty Anderson's co-workers was quoted as saying, but that was just what lay on the surface. As investigators kept digging, instead of finding answers, they found the case getting stranger and stranger, and soon the whole nation couldn't get enough of the sensational story. If this podcast has taught me anything, it's that our collective fascination with true crime isn't new. The only thing that's changed is the medium, and even that's only changed so much. As I record this, for example, there's a warranted discussion underway about the Ryan Murphy show that aired on Netflix centered on Jeffrey Dahmer. Is it too soon to dramatize what happened in that god-awful case? Is it fair to the victim's families, many of whom are still very much alive? These are valid questions to ask, but make no mistake, They're not new questions. At the turn of the 20th century, there were vaudeville performances acting out famous crimes at the time. In the 1960s, TV shows were based on real cases too. And in the 1980s, the most scintillating true crime stories got the TV movie or miniseries treatment. The one based on this case was called Murder Ordained. Here's a clip in all of its pregnant, pause-filled glory. Don't let fear dissuade you from doing what you think is right. You must find the defendant guilty of murder in the first degree. Thank you. 
I remember watching this TV movie two-parter when it came out in 1987, though the details are fuzzy. Mostly, my memory centers on the scene depicting the death of Marty Anderson. For whatever reason, that stuck with me. So did the portrayal of his wife, played by Joe Beth Williams, who I would have already known from the 1982 movie Poltergeist. If you're curious, yes, I was too young to watch either of those when I did, and those experiences surely explain a lot about me now. Anyway, Murder Ordained was a big deal when it came out for a few reasons. For starters, its release came right on the heels of another religiously rooted scandal, the fall of the Reverend Jim Baker. I won't get too in the weeds on this, but the gist is that Jim and Tammy Faye Baker were among the most famous televangelists in America, hosting a show called The PTL Club, as in Praise the Lord or People That Love, take your pick. People adored them and sent them tons of money to do God's work, which the Bakers apparently thought required that they have multiple houses and expensive cars. Right before Murder Ordain came out, Baker had stepped down from the show after being accused of drugging and assaulting his former secretary, Jessica Hahn. Hahn alleged that Baker and another preacher, John Wesley Fletcher, had assaulted her in December of 1980 and then paid her $279,000 to keep quiet. That money had come from the PTL organization, meaning that people's donations to do God's work paid to hush up Hahn's rape. It was a dramatic case that landed Baker, Fletcher, and Han on countless talk shows. I am so sick of fighting this. I'm fighting all these men. And I have a story. My story is true. I'll back it up one million percent. And if I'm wrong, then let me be indicted. Now, there's more to the story overall, but what I've spelled out above is as much as people knew in May of 1987 when Murder Ordained aired. And it mattered. I found dozens of stories in news archives that either referenced both of these cases in the same article or at minimum placed separate stories about the two matters side by side in the same newspaper. So there was that. There was also the fact that though Murder Ordained was by no means the first ripped from the headlines TV movie ever made, it was one of the most controversial, in part because a lot of people in Emporia didn't believe the official version of events it depicted. So let's talk about that official version. Lorna Gale Slater was born in Kansas to Father Lauren and Mother Alta in Hutchinson, the largest city in and county seat of Reno County, the town situated on the Arkansas River. Lauren had served in the South Pacific in the Navy during World War II, then got a job with a bank as he and Alta raised two children, Lorna and her brother Daryl. They were a church-going family. In the early 1970s, Lorna met Martin Anderson, a man about three years older than she, who had been married and divorced once before. For background purposes, I'll note that in the May 1973 newspaper announcement about Lorna and Marty's engagement, no father is mentioned for Marty. He's listed only as the son of Mrs. Maxine Anderson of Wellington. I found Marty and his mom in a quaintly handwritten census record from 1960 that showed they lived with Maxine's husband, and I assume Marty's dad, Kenneth Anderson, as well as a son named Stephen Anderson, who would have been three years older than Marty. Kenneth had worked for the Kansas State Grain Inspection Department, then later joined the Army and was a sergeant when he married Maxine in 1943. A wedding announcement said Maxine had a college degree and taught home ec to high schoolers. Kenneth died in 1970, which was three years before Marty married Lorna. 
It's still a little odd he wasn't mentioned in the engagement announcement, but the family must have had their reasons. Marty and Lorna lived in Emporia, Kansas, a smaller town about 110 miles northwest of Hutchinson. The couple had four children, all girls, the youngest two being a set of two-year-olds, the oldest was eight, in between was a six-year-old. In 1983, the couple celebrated 10 years married, but things weren't going well. From a video posted by the Lyon County History Center, Lorna Anderson was not known for being the most truthful person, according to many reports. She had been rumored to have many affairs. Now, I want to be fair here. So let me say now that looking at this case through today's lens, I think a lot more was put at Lorna's feet than is probably deserved. Now, that's not to say Marty did anything to deserve what happened to him. But from my research, I've gathered that this was an abusive relationship. So things are a little bit more complicated than a TV movie led us to believe nearly 40 years ago. I'll elaborate on that in a bit. Still, what's conveyed by that History Center video is generally what people in Emporia understood to be true. The Andersons' marriage was rocky, and Lorna was known to have men on the side. She was also known to show up with bruises on occasion. Lorna had asked for a divorce several times, but her husband, having already gone through that once before, didn't want a divorce, and he definitely didn't want to lose his four daughters. It clearly wasn't a healthy marriage. Then in 1982, Emporia welcomed some newcomers to town, Thomas and Sandra Bird and their three children. Tom and Sandy, as they were more casually known, were both successful and well-educated. Tom had two master's degrees in theology, while Sandy had a master's in mathematics. They got married in 1970, when both of them were 20 years old. When they moved to town from Arkansas, it was so Tom could take over as reverend at the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Sandy was working toward her doctorate while teaching at Emporia State University. Both had made huge strides professionally within a year of arriving in Arkansas. Tom's congregation blossomed, while Sandy got a promotion that meant she'd be teaching more classes. While this was good for each of them individually, it wasn't great for them as a couple. Their marriage was already strained. Then, one fateful day in early 1983, Tom met Lorna Anderson from a video by The Crime Reel. Thomas had met Lorna, along with her husband, Martin, at a softball game that he organized through the church. Tom and Marty were both athletic. Tom, in fact, had been a distance runner in college and still ran more than five miles a day. Lorna and Marty began attending Tom's services. Soon, Lorna was working for Thomas's secretary. The way she would later tell the story more or less matches the way it was portrayed in Murder Ordained. She said their friendship quickly became something more. Here's the first pre-coital conversation as dramatized for 1987 TV viewers. Cheryl's not here. She went to Wichita for more copy paper. She can't possibly be back till four. But wouldn't that usually be your job? Now, this dialogue must be utter bullshit because it's a scene between two people, neither of whom spoke to the screenwriter who wrote the thing, but the gist lines up with what Lorna has maintained in the decades since, that she and the Reverend began a passionate, illicit affair in the spring of 1983. People in Emporia had been suspecting as much. Rumors were spreading about the pastor spending too much one-on-one -on -one time with his secretary. It was apparently causing trouble in the Bird household, too. Sandra had confided in some of her friends that she was concerned about her marital problems. 
including her husband's friendship with his secretary, Lorna Anderson. On July 16, 1983, Tom and Sandy hired a babysitter, a 14-year-old girl named Amy, to watch their three kids so they could have a date night. The two went to dinner and a movie to celebrate Sandy's newly announced promotion. At around 9.30 p.m., they popped back to their house to pick up a bottle of wine and some whiskey before telling Amy that they would be back by around 10.30 p.m. Tom would later say that the two went to the church office and had a couple of drinks. After that, Sandy drove to her office at the university. Tom, meanwhile, stayed at the church and went for a night jog, which was how he often cleared his head to write his upcoming sermons. Sandy wasn't supposed to be gone for long, so when she didn't come right back, he started to get worried. He called Amy, the babysitter, and asked if Sandy had come home already. When Amy said she hadn't, Tom called the police. He jogged back to his house. Sandy never came home. The next morning, some hikers found Sandy's station wagon overturned in the Cottonwood River beneath the Rocky Ford Bridge. Sandy's body was floating face down alongside her car. The old wooden bridge was approached by two sharp turns on a gravel road, and it appeared that Sandra had miscalculated these bends and had lurched down the embankment, being thrown from her vehicle. These sharp turns really were something else, by the way. In an appellate ruling I found, it's described like this, quote, Directly south of the Rocky Ford Bridge, there is an S-curve consisting of two 90-degree angle turns, end quote. Sandy's autopsy was conducted by a Dr. Juan Gabriel, who determined that the 33-year-old woman's most serious injury was a transacted kidney, a pretty common injury to find someone who'd been in a car wreck. The theory was that she didn't turn sharply enough on that second 90-degree bend, and instead of her car propelling across the bridge, it drove down the embankment and into the river while she was thrown from the driver's seat. It was officially ruled an accident. Now, if you've seen Murder Ordained, you'll know that the movie focuses on a state trooper named John Rule, who arrives to investigate this traffic accident and immediately senses something is amiss. The real John Rule did raise questions, but it doesn't seem like he used his outside voice until four months later. And by then, investigators had a second body on their hands. In hindsight, the clues pointing to Sandy Bird's death not being an accident are overwhelming. There were no skid marks suggesting she ever tried to course correct when she realized she'd missed the Rocky Ford Bridge. Her blood alcohol content wasn't very high either. It was only about 0.01%. In most states, 0.07% is the legal threshold for being too drunk to drive. Maybe if she'd been drunk, it would make sense that she never noticed she was careening into a river. But she was as close to sober as you can get without being, you know, totally sober. Also, there was blood on the bridge above the spot where her body was later discovered. Her watch was found west of a tree that her car would have had to have stayed east of to roll past, and nothing made sense. The TV movie depicts Trooper Rule as making a lot of this evidence, and then fighting his superiors to make them listen. In reality, it sounds more like he raised his doubts to his bosses, including the sheriff. They brushed him off, and he moved along because he wasn't a homicide detective. Probably nothing would have come of it had Marty Anderson not been gunned down on November 3rd. On that day, Lorna, Marty, and their four daughters had gone shopping, first at an army base in Fort Riley. 
Marty's full-time job was as chief medical technologist for Newman Memorial County Hospital in Emporia, but he also was a reserve army captain and could shop at the base, which is always a good deal because it's tax-free and you get a military discount. Marty wanted a camouflage jacket and the kids were due for some new clothes. After Fort Riley, the family stopped in nearby Manhattan to swing by a discount store and grab lunch at a fast food restaurant. One of the girls ordered a strawberry sundae that she couldn't finish, so Lorna finished it for her. This was noteworthy because Lorna was apparently allergic to strawberries, but didn't think the sundae would bother her. She began driving home with Marty in the passenger seat and the girls in the back of the car, but she soon fell sick. She pulled the car over. William Boyer from the Lyon County History Center again. So she had gone out of the car to throw up and lost her car keys, and she called her husband out to uh, help her find them. And you might be wondering why a woman rushing from a car to vomit would grab her keys from the ignition before she did so. And that'd be a fair question. According to Lorna, after she threw up, a masked gunman emerged, uh, demanded Marty's wallet, and then shot him to death. Marty was shot three times in the head. Lorna reported that the gunman then turned the weapon on her, tried to fire, but failed, and then ran off into the night. She said she didn't get a good look at him or even register what direction he ran. The couple's children were just yards away in the car, and the oldest, the eight-year-old, saw everything, or at least saw it as well as she could in the darkness. She couldn't see the gunman's face, but told police she saw her dad talking to a man on the side of the road, and then she saw sparks flying. A couple in a passing vehicle stopped and rushed to help Lorna, who was reportedly hysterical. That couple then flagged down a passing bus full of boosters en route to a high school football game, who tended to the girls while they awaited the police. Others on the bus rushed to help Marty. The bus happened to be carrying five EMTs and a dentist who orchestrated an effort to administer CPR, but it was clear Marty was already dead. Bus driver Larry Wallace told the Wichita Eagle newspaper, quote, the wife kind of went into shock and the EMTs worked with her, too, end quote. That story ran November 8, 1983, the same day Marty, age 34, was buried in his hometown of Wellington. It's worth noting that the primary source in the Wichita Eagle story was the Reverend Tom Bird, who was identified as Lorna Anderson's minister and served as the family spokesman. He told reporter Dan Close what Lorna had allegedly relayed to him about the murder. Bird said the gunman seemed to be lying in wait, thought Lorna was alone, and seemed surprised by Marty's sudden appearance. Police were clearly flabbergasted by the whole thing. A quote from an undersheriff closed out the story. Most of it is still a mystery, he said. Right now, not everything's pieced together. To be sure, police had very little evidence to go on. They knew from the bullets in Marty's skull that the gun was a 22 caliber, but they found no trace of the weapon at the scene. Mostly what they had was Lorna's very vague description and a tip line full of rumors about Lorna's infidelities. It would be 10 days before reporter Dan Close would follow up with a story that would rock Emporia and catapult the grisly case to the national stage. The headline read, Emporian charged with plotting to kill. It began, quote, An Emporia man was charged Friday with conspiring with Lorna Anderson to kill her husband, Martin Anderson, who was shot three times in the head in a field next to an isolated highway south of Manhattan. End quote. 
Now, you might be thinking that the Emporia Man is the Reverend Tom Bird, but no, that would be way too simple. The man arrested was 35-year-old Daniel Carter, a divorced electrician who'd previously worked as Sandy's hairdresser. The paperwork indicated that he had plotted the murder with Lorna, yet Lorna wasn't initially charged. In fact, Marty's older brother, Steve Anderson, served as Lorna's spokesperson in that news story, declining to comment on her behalf. How this all unfolded must have been confusing as hell for people in Emporia. Daniel Carter was released on bond a few days after being charged. Lorna would finally be charged as his co-conspirator on November 23rd, so 20 days after Marty's death. She was out on bond for Thanksgiving. Meanwhile, rumors were rampant that she'd been having an affair with the Reverend Bird, and it's around this time that police were like, geez, Tom's wife Sandy died just four months ago. Maybe we should look into that a bit more closely. The issues Trooper Rule had, however meekly raised about the case, suddenly came to the fore. Not only was there blood on the bridge and the watch near the tree, but there was also the fact that the driver's seat of the station wagon had been pushed too far back for a short woman like Sandy to have been driving. One of the other things that I thought was really interesting too is that a lot of people said that Sandy always wore a seatbelt, so why would she have been ejected from the car? As the case against Lorna plodded along, investigators kept pressure on Daniel Carter, who led them to his brother, Daryl Carter. See, Daniel told police that Lorna had approached him about killing her husband, but he wasn't the first Carter she'd solicited. First, she had asked Daryl, his construction worker brother, and Daryl said she wasn't alone when she did it. The Reverend Tom Bird was there with her. This led to Tom's arrest. He was arrested and faced trial on solicitation in July of 1984, before Lorna's trial, even. Daryl's testimony was key because he said that Tom told him in the previous May that he loved Lorna and that they wanted Marty killed so Lorna could collect about $400,000 in life insurance. A month after Marty's death, after Daniel had already been charged, Daryl and Tom met in a parked car in a bowling alley parking lot. Tom didn't know that Daryl was recording the conversation. While Tom didn't say anything overtly incriminating, he did mention their May meeting and said things that didn't sound great for a pastor to say, like that he wasn't celebrating Martin Anderson's death, but he wasn't mourning it either. He told Daryl, quote, We don't want to get your name involved. We don't want to get my name involved. We've got the kids to take care of, end quote. Bird was convicted of conspiracy to kill. Meanwhile, Sandy's death was still being reinvestigated. Her body was exhumed, and a second autopsy found things the first one missed. From Crime Reel again. These included what he believed to be defensive injuries, consistent with someone trying to ward off blows in an attack. Not only that, but it appeared that her internal injuries would have taken some 30 to 60 minutes to kill her, meaning she would have had to have been alive when her body was thrown from her car into the river, yet there was no water in her lungs. Those charges were presented to a grand jury, and Tom Bird was indicted on a first-degree murder charge. That trial unfolded in July of 1985, with Tom's side continuing to argue that Sandy's death had been the result of a car wreck and nothing more. But his own expert struggled to explain the defensive wounds, particularly linear bruises around Sandy's wrists. 
Asked if those bruises concerned him, pathologist James Bridgen said they did, quite a bit. He said, quote, I couldn't figure how they might have happened. One night I tied my wife up to try to reproduce them. I didn't do it, end quote. The jury decided that the Reverend Bird did do it. He was sentenced to life in prison. Still, the townsfolk at Vimporia were torn. Bird had maintained his innocence and was beloved by his congregation. Lorna also had insisted she was innocent for two years, though a lot of people whispered that surely she'd been the killer all along, the femme fatale trying to get the pastor all to herself. Then, in August of 1985, Lorna's story drastically changed. She had fallen in love with a man she'd known previously from church, a gospel singer named Charles Eldridge, whom she married just before Tom's murder trial. After the conviction, she said she wanted to unburden her soul. She pleaded guilty to two charges of soliciting Marty's murder, and, as is required with guilty pleas, she explained what happened. She said that Tom, her lover, had given her $5,000 to hire someone to kill Marty. First, she said Tom asked Daryl Carter to do it, but he demurred, so they turned to Daniel Carter, who happened to be Lorna's ex-lover, as well as her ex-hairdresser. Daniel passed the money along to a guy named Gregory Curry, a co-worker at the Wolf Creek nuclear power plant. They all admitted to being part of the plot, but none admitted to actually pulling the trigger. As soon as word spread that TV producers were sniffing around the Bird-Anderson murders, controversy ensued. Tom Bird had already filed appeals in his cases, and his lawyers told reporters that any dramatization of the case could jeopardize his chances. In December of 1981, an attorney for Bird filed a federal lawsuit hoping to halt the production of the CBS version, which, as I mentioned before, wasn't the only one initially pursued, but it was the one furthest along in development. The suit, of course, failed, though it did seem to effectively cause some curtailing of the dramatic license producers might have initially planned to take. For example, there reportedly was a scene in an early draft of the murder-ordained script that showed Sandy Bird pleading for mercy while her husband beat her to death on the bridge. There's no such scene in the actual miniseries. Rather, you see a shadowy figure and some quick cuts suggesting that Sandy was killed. When the movie came out, Tom complained to reporters directly, saying that the snippet I played earlier, the one in which Lorna says Cheryl was out of the office, followed by the pastor locking the door and mounting her on his desk, never happened. For the record, I find this complaint hilarious. Bird is quoted in an Associated Press story as saying, It didn't happen. I don't throw my secretary on the desk and make love to her. That's Hollywood all the way. That wouldn't even be romantic. Bird did finally admit to an affair with Lorna at this point, by the way, though he said it didn't start until both of their spouses were dead. Emporia residents were divided on the movie's depiction of their town as much as they were its depiction of the case. From WIBW News. The fact that we're a Bible Belt town. They make us look like we're a bunch of hicks in the sticks somewhere. Like, you know, we're a super small town and we're not. Everyone's a critic. The TV movie Murder Ordained ends with some updates on the characters portrayed throughout. Trooper John Rule had been promoted, Tom Bird was serving life sentence, while Sandy's brother got custody of their kids. 
Lauren Anderson was serving five and a half to 18 years in prison for solicitation, and her four kids had been adopted by her new husband, Charles Eldridge. The final line in the postscript was this. Martin Anderson was killed in 1983. Charges have yet to be filed for his murder. But that's not at all how the story truly ended. Here's what really happened. John Rule discovered he wasn't a huge fan of his newfound fame. Emporia was a small town, after all, and though he continued working as a traffic cop for a while, he often had to deal with people recognizing his name and not giving two shits about the ticket he was writing them. They all just wanted to talk about the Bird Anderson case. Rule asked to be transferred to western Kansas, eventually retiring after nearly three decades working Kansas traffic accidents. In the early aughts, he told a Los Angeles Times reporter that every time Murder Ordained aired on TV, which was usually a couple of times a year, he would get letters from all over the world. Two reporters depicted in the movie, real-life journos named Roberta Burke and Nancy Horst, played by actors Kathy Bates and Margot Rose, respectively, also came to kind of hate in the thing. The reporters in Rule had sold their rights to CBS to make the series, but Roberta, nicknamed Bobby, who later went on to become Emporia's mayor, said that it never sat well with her that Rule was made out to be some man out to upend the system to get justice for Sandy Bird. He really only spoke up about his misgivings after Bird's convictions and Lorna's guilty pleas. Bobby said if Rule had been more like the guy actor Keith Carradine portrayed him to be, maybe Marty Anderson never would have died. Lorna pleaded guilty in November 1988 to second-degree murder in her husband's death. She agreed to testify against Tom and was sentenced to 15 years to life in prison. While she went to court, she made Charles Eldridge out to be her savior. She entrusted him with $140,000 to take care of her four daughters, whom he adopted. But within a few years, their marriage went to shit, and not just because Lorna was in prison. Eldridge molested one of those girls and ended up in prison himself. Lorna divorced him, and the already traumatized girls finally got some stability after settling down with Lorna's parents, who raised them until Lorna was released from prison in 2007 after serving 22 years. Normally, people plead guilty partly in hopes of lessening their sentences. Surely that's what Lorna must have had in mind when she agreed to testify against her former lover, who was finally charged with first-degree murder and Marty's death in 1990. Lorna told the jury that while the man who shot Marty was masked, she knew it was Tom, she saw his eyes. She took full responsibility for the role she played, she said, and knew that when she pulled over to supposedly throw up along the side of the road, that Marty would die. The jury didn't trust her testimony, though, and Bird was acquitted. Even though he'd been convicted of killing his wife, he still served less time in prison than Lorna did, having been paroled in 2004 and released from supervision two years after that. While in prison, he married a woman named Terry, and the two of them began a marriage counseling program for inmates and their spouses. He has maintained that he didn't kill his wife, though he acknowledges that the evidence doesn't support her having died in an accident. He said, quote, I don't know whether it was an accident or suicide or murder. All I know is that I didn't kill Sandy, end quote. He suggested that maybe Lorna or one of her former lovers had done it. He described himself as a knight in shining armor who had tried to help Lorna out of an abusive relationship. He continued, quote, 
Little did I know she would turn out to be the dragon herself, end quote. After Tom's parole, he became a marriage counselor in Iowa. I just want to let that sink in for a minute. A man convicted of killing his wife went on to become a marriage counselor. The Rocky Ford Bridge still stands, by the way, and is locally known informally as Bird Bridge. It's said to be haunted. You can find videos on YouTube of ghost hunters checking it out. Hello, friends. Welcome to 13 Days of Halloween. Today's video is going to be on the a haunted location called Bird Bridge. In part one, I'm just going to be telling you, like, the story, the background, why people think it's haunted. And then in part two, I'm actually going to be going to Bird Bridge. Post-prison, Lorna remarried a man named Terry. Yes, the same name as her ex-lover's spouse, though this one was spelled with a Y instead of an I, and returned to her hometown of Hutchinson, where she worked for Interfaith Housing Services. In 2017, she became the organization's CEO, a development that the Hutchinson News described as a triumphant rebuilding of her life 11 years after she walked out of prison. In the story, Lorna, now surnamed Moore, talked about how she eventually found her footing behind bars. She took parenting classes, even becoming an instructor for the course. She earned a college degree. She formed a chapter of the United Methodist Women in her prison and served as its first president. She also owned up to what she had done. I absolutely don't want to make excuses, she said of the day Marty was killed. I knew what was going to happen. I intentionally stopped the car. Asked who pulled the trigger, she said it was the minister. She's been consistent in that answer for more than 30 years. To research the story, I rewatched Murder Ordained. This was one of those cases I first encountered in childhood and have always wanted to learn more about, which this podcast provides a great excuse to do. I also read appellate briefs and rulings, contemporary newspaper stories, and retrospectives. A 2004 Los Angeles Times story by Scott Kraft was especially useful, as were stories quoting reporters Nancy Horst and Roberta Burke, whose newspaper nominated them for a Pulitzer Prize for being the real John Rules of the story, doggedly piecing together the links between Tom Bird and Lorna Anderson. Their editor, Everett Ray Call, went to his grave believing the pair had been robbed of the Pulitzer. Support your local journalism. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>